I don't know about you, but I've been trying to filter the news. And of course, we even know the news is filtered as well um, about the horrific things happening and about to happen as the second largest country in Europe has its cities under siege, right? Uh, I guess it's my privilege <laughs> to only watch part of it, but I'm watching some of the news and only some of the news as we know is even being allowed because the damage is so great and the implications for our world are so extensive. How, how will Ukraine survive? What will become of the people who stayed? What will become of the scattered people? What will become of their ancient and beautiful cities? So when can the restoration of Kiev or of these other beautiful towns, when can the restoration begin? Well, really only once the war has been won. Now Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God to the remnant of Israel that had remained. The rest of Israel had been scattered and lived in exile among other nations. And as Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, he made apprentices, training them to run his new kingdom. And he gave up his own life as a sacrifice. And at the same time, defeated evil on the cross. Just when evil threw all its worst at him, he defeated it on the cross. And he rose from the dead. The war was won and the rebuilding had begun. Say that with me. The war has been won and the rebuilding has begun. These disciples met with Jesus after his resurrection. And we read in Acts 1, verse 6 through 11. So when they'd come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The timing is the issue. I'm not going to tell you about that. But, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You'll have power to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, the area of the lost tribes, and to the end of of the earth. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, this is the kingdom that's being restored, the rule of God. The war has been won, the rebuilding has begun. It extends out from Jerusalem and to the nations through bold witness, empowered by the Spirit of God. But it's, you know, it's just, it's just Israel that's going to be restored, right? It's just the kingdoms of of Israel. Well, no, Jesus' obedience unto death, his sacrifice, and his victory on the cross means that the principalities and powers have been defeated. The dark lords that back the play of evil empires have, have been disarmed. 
and through allegiance to Jesus as king, they are now cleansed and, and they are now the, the temple space. Their sins have been forgiven. Their, their space has been cleansed so that God can dwell in them like a temple. That's been the story. The question has come, well, they need to be Jews first, right? I mean, it's as a Jewish Messiah, right? Well, no, it actually seems that your culture isn't the problem or the solution. It's your allegiance to Jesus as king that matters. So God is now restoring the ruins of, of Israel, but also the world through uh, his multi-ethnic, philanthropic, polychrome, worship-based, fictive kinship group called the family of God. Multi-ethnic, philanthropic, polychrome, worship-based, fictive kinship group called the family of God, right? All nations, all tribes centered around Jesus, worshiping him as king, the sons and daughters of God. Last week, Paul and Peter and Barnabas gave one defense for the claim that non-Jews must become full Jews before they count among the Messiah's people. One, one defense against this claim. They have to be Jews before they, before they count as the Messiah's people. And their exhibit A, the first and final exhibit, was the undeniable fact that these Gentile believers had the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them as part of the newly cleansed temple space. <laughs> I just imagine they just dropped the mic and walk off the stage. What are you going to say about that? It's a regenerative work that God has done in his spirit, in his people. What else are you going to say? So they say, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? This is Acts 15. You're putting God to the test by placing a yoke with the circumcision and the covenant of Moses on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had been doing through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied. Now, I want to do a quick interlude here. James has only been barely introduced in the book of Acts. He was not one of the original disciples. He's actually Jesus's brother, half-brother. Uh, when, when the disciple James that we know of from the gospel stories, when he was executed in Acts chapter 12, Peter, Simeon, uh, was imprisoned under very tight security, which um, didn't really work because an angel broke him out. <laughs> and as he heads off, um, to an undisclosed location. He, he tells the church that's gathered um, to go talk to James. It's like he hands the baton to James, the brother of Jesus. Acts 12, 17 says, Peter described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. So James is also called like a pillar in the Jerusalem church. So he has a very strong voice in this matter. So when he replies, people are going to listen. Now James, like Jesus' other brothers, uh, Jude, for example, 
who wrote that really short letter that gets lost and maybe stuck to the front page of Revelation. <laughs> uh, Jude uh, was one of the other brothers who had not believed in him or followed him during Jesus' public career. And we read about that in John chapter 7, verse 5, if you're interested. Uh, but, but Jesus had appeared to James after the resurrection in a special and separate way. Uh, we read that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, which says, Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And, and James uh, wrote that letter uh, bearing his name uh, with the letter James. So, um, so let, let's go back into that passage again and, and, and we'll pick it up. And all the assembly fell silent, right? The mic drop. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they'd finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or, or Peter, has related how God visited the Gentiles to take from them, from the Gentiles, a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Right. So, so he's... He's got, God's got people out among the Gentiles that he's bringing into this family. The prophets agree, and he quotes various prophets, some out of Amos and, and some, some from Isaiah. But he says, after this, I will return. God says, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind, the extra bits that's left out there of mankind, may seek the Lord. And all Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So that's the, the prophecy that he's quoting. And so the tent of King David is the family, the household. And the hope, and, and actually the promise, was that David's son, in as many generations as it would take, would sit on the throne and rule with justice, love, wisdom, and a firm hand. And Yahweh says, I will return. I will rebuild the tent. I will rebuild and restore the ruins. So God came down to do just that. He took on flesh. And Jesus, the God-man, is that king. And we are that kingdom taken from all the nations the remnant of mankind that's now called by Yahweh's name indwelt by the spirit of God followers of Jesus the son of David the Messiah of Israel the hope of nations and this is what God's been talking about from ages past isn't that beautiful <laughs> So, therefore, verse 19, therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. It seems like uh, an about face. Well, they, they have to not do these things to be saved? Or what is the, what is the situation? And, uh, so, so two main points come up, and Tom Wright helped me dial this in. Um, 
first de declaration is there's no needful circumcision. You don't need to be circumcised. If a Gentile believes in Jesus, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. You're not a second-class citizen because you're a Gentile that's uncircumcised. If you have allegiance to Jesus, that's all that matters. And so that's pretty awesome. People would complain about that for many chapters to come in the book of Acts, but that point still stands. You don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. John Polhill, in his commentary, says the issue was all but settled. Um, resolving it, however, raised another problem. If the Gentiles were not being required to observe Jewish ritual laws, how would Jewish Christians who maintain strict Torah observance, they're keeping their culture, right? Because it's not the solution or the problem. It's just, is allegiance to Jesus that's the answer. So now I've got a Jewish Christian who's trying to maintain strict Torah observance. How am I supposed to fellowship with a Gentile without running the risk of being ritually defiled myself. That's a, it's a big social problem, isn't it? James saw the question coming next, you know, and so he addresses it and says Gentiles should be um, directed to abstain from four things, from food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, the Greek is porneia, you've heard pornography, porneia, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So we have no needful circumcision, but as Tom Wright would say, also no needful or no needless offense. No needful circumcision, no needless offense. Because every city and town in the world had Jewish inhabitants at this time. They were scattered, as we said. Um, Josephus records this. So wherever you went, people would be used to hearing what the law of Moses said. And, and because Christians claimed that in Jesus as Messiah, the law and the prophets have been fulfilled. And because this is going to be a problem, puzzling at best, at worst, offensive, the Gentile Christians are being encouraged not to slap them in the face and say, ha ha, either within the church itself or with unbelieving Jewish neighbors. Yeah, some follower of God you are when you still participate in idolatry. Because what's being banned here are all related to pagan worship practices. Meat sacrificed to idols, blood being consumed, ritual prostitution that took place in the temples. This is the case. Now, the main argument from Christians who want to presume that Jesus doesn't have anything to say about your sexual relationships other than just cheer you on, they will actually use this passage and say the same thing I just said. So where does that place me, right? Uh, they'll say this is, has to do with ritual prostitution, and of course we don't do that today. So as long as, uh, some might say, so as long as I don't use sex in the worship of idols, I can do whatever I want and just call it love, right? Well, it's true that pagan rituals and sexual relationships associated with those festivals were in view here. But one other thing, it's also not clear that you fulfilling your sexual desires however you please. It's not clear that that isn't also a form of worship, if not actually bowing down at the temple of Aphrodite or Bacchus, Dionysus, or Eros. And also, 
James didn't feel compelled to affirm basic Jewish morality or the kingdom ethic the, or the Jewish sexual ethic, which we know was, was all about purity, um, because that was assumed. So yes, he's referring to ritual temple sacrifice and ritual temple sexuality, but we can't abuse this passage and this concept to say, well, James didn't say we couldn't cheat on our taxes. Uh, and the decision is clear. Uh, I guess we don't have to honor our parents anymore. Or I guess we don't even have to show love to each other. James didn't say that. You see, what's assumed is the original decrees. John Polhill uh, clears the air in this way. He says, why were the original decrees ritual here in Acts 15? More than just moral in the first place? The answer, quite simply is that the moral rules, such as the Ten Commandments, are already assumed here. All Christians, Jew and Gentile, lived by them. <laughs> the Gentile needed no reminder of such basic marks of Christian behavior. Morality was not the issue at the Jerusalem Conference. Fellowship was. Fellowship. And the decrees were a sort of minimum requirement placed on the Gentile Christians in deference, says Pole Hill, to the scruples of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't go hanging out and hanging on to prostitutes at the temple. Stay away from the idle practices that are going on there altogether. So no needful circumcision and no needless offense. Because in, in the Gentile culture, uh, the pagan culture, worshiping idols was just the cost of doing business. But they were very offensive, highly offensive to the Jewish people, and it caused a rift in social relationships. We hate those people. We, sus we, we suspect those people are doing really bad things back and forth. So these requirements would come as zero shock to the Gentiles, who were used to being neighbors with Jews. And this decision would set the course for life in cities where you'd live amongst one another, and you'd know what's going on. There, there was no such thing as privacy in the ancient world, in the cities. Everything was heard or seen. Uh, so if, if you were maybe on a villa, on a hill, um, maybe only your staff would know what was going on, but, um, but everybody would know um, what's going on. You just lived on top of one another in these cities. The Spanish proverb goes like this. Maybe you'll like this. Amor es ciego. Love is blind. Los vecinos know. However, the neighbors are not. <laughs> Love is blind. The neighbors, however, are not, right? All this was public. Everything was public. Now, how do we work that into our private life? Because we do have some sense of private lives now. Um, that's, a, that's a conversation to have with a, an accountability partner. Okay, how do we bring what I'm doing out into the, into the light of the forgiveness of God? But the point of this text is to say this, out of sensitivity for the Jewish community, even though the Gentiles are not being asked to follow the law, they're supposed to show sensitivity to the deep views, the monotheistic views of, of Judaism, which is the core of the new Jesus movement at all. Paul would say it like this to the Corinthians. He'd say, I'm free from all, but I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 1 Corinthians 9 19 through 21, he says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
Now to those outside the law, the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. Though not being outside the law of God, but but under the law of Christ, because I'm under King Jesus' dominion, that I might win those outside the law. So Paul's saying this. He's sorting it out in his own mind. Uh, He's like a Jew and lives like a Jew when he's in a Jewish context. And he lives like a Gentile in a Gentile context. The context doesn't control him. but, But out of his love for Christ, out of his desire to reach out in all directions, he doesn't let anything get in the way of the gospel. Because he's thinking, and this is what I want you to be thinking about, like our salvation is secured by the blood of Jesus. Our freedom has been won by the victory of Jesus. Our unity has been accomplished by the Spirit of Jesus. And the churches in Rome had lots of trouble holding this unity together. The Jewish background believers wouldn't eat at the same table as Gentile background believers, even though the very meal they were eating was the body and blood of Jesus the Messiah. Now I don't sit with them. The church in Issaquah, and I don't just mean our church, but the church in Issaquah has lots of trouble holding this unity together. Uh, We don't eat meat sacrificed to idols that we know of, uh, but we do have a dozen issues or more that can divide up the room like a Costco lasagna. You go to that corner, you go to that corner, you go to that corner. What we have to do is focus in on Jesus. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Let's just listen in in closing to the main issues in Rome, and let's see our assignment for today, uh, for the letters to the churches in Issaquah. <laughs> Romans 12, 9 through 13. Love must be genuine. Do you sincerely want what's best for the other person, the other Christian? Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Do we give a pass to greed, divisiveness, rage, slander, sexual immorality? Oh, no big deal. Well, Jesus thinks it is. Do we love one another with brotherly affection? (laughs) Your family now. Actually, better than that. You're the restored ruins of a family. And we live toward the Father looking to please him as we love one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, in the last two years, we've done something. We've built something, all right. Uh, The church has, has worked so hard to prove we are right that we've built up walls between us, and those walls keep our neighbors out. Let me just read this again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's how the ruins get restored. That's how the family of God gets rebuilt. And how the world gets invited to taste and see that the Lord is good.